subject of picking you up and making you feel good, uh, where were you? Do you remember where you were on September 6th, 1995, uh, um, night so of the streak? Yeah, so I do remember um, my parents watching the, the watching it in the living room. I was there. I didn't watch the whole game. Um, I, oh gosh, I feel like it was a school night and I was worried about a test or something the next day, but I, I couldn't tell you. So, um, so I didn't stay up for the whole game because I've always been a sleepy girl. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I stayed up to watch the, um, uh, the, the middle of the game where he took the 22 minute uh, um, nice. uh, bow, which was awesome. So, uh, so yeah, I was in Woodstock, Maryland um, mm. in my parents' house. Um, and um so I was unable to find it, but I, I distinctly remember, like, before going to bed that night, um, I had a diary, and I remember writing, Cal Ripken uh, reached his 21-31 uh, game today. Um, I feel like my next sentence was something completely unrelated. <laughs> like, and I hate my math teacher or something like that. Uh, and I... I went through the vault. I, I went through all of my old journals that I could find. And I had 1994 and I had 1998 and I had 2000 onward, but there was a missing, <laughs> I could not find anything from 95. <laughs> so I, unfortunately the, my, my pithy uh, um, comments about Cal Ripken's uh, 2131 game are lost. <laughs> That's what this podcast is for though, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that, that sounds almost like a, a baseball player's reaction to that moment where if, if you gave them a writing assignment, that's what he would write something like, yeah, Cal Ripken broke the streak, saw it tonight. Also, I hate physics. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I actually, uh, in rewatching the game, one of the things that the color commentators were talking about was um, how well Cal Ripken is able to express himself. Um, and, uh, I, you know, they mentioned something about that early on and I didn't, you know, recall one way or the other that, that, you know, he was particularly expressive. Um, but then they had some of the, uh, the side interviews talking about, uh, what it was like for him to play with his father and his brother and, and other things. And I was just like, oh yeah, he's really like, I hate using the word articulate about, uh, about athletes cause it always sounds weird, but he really is expressive and, and, mm -hmm. um, that is definitely not the norm. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. so yeah, there, like his his diary entry, I'm sure was was uh, better <laughs> than just like hit my dinger, I'm good. Yeah, he had a little element of like a Derek Jeter kind of public persona throughout most of his career, where he kind of knew the right cliche to give the media at the right mm -hmm. time, so he would never say the thing that would get him in trouble and would also mm -hmm. give them something to put in their story, but not really, you know, make people freak out more than they would have to about it. Mm -hmm. But he, if, when they were giving him moments of, to be more introspective, yeah, he'd mm -hmm. take it. Uh, mm -hmm. And he was, it, it was almost like uh, baseball, <laughs> what's the word I'm looking for? Baseball, not rhetorical, but uh, baseball eloquent, I think is mm -hmm. the best way to describe him. Mm -hmm. That, mm -hmm. uh, that it, the kind of thing that when you hear a baseball player say it makes you go, that's actually pretty wise. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, but he, it was always very clear that he um, protected his squeaky clean image. Um, like even as a kid, I wondered how how much of him was real. Um, right. And uh, I, he was my favorite player even when I was very, very little. Um, 
and uh, I can't recall why. Actually, I think Billy Rifkin was my favorite because I was the youngest of two, and so I, I had this. Mm. <laughs> um, and so, uh, like, I you know I felt like Billy was the underdog, and so I really liked him. But I, I think it was partially just because I liked that it was a, a family that they were a Baltimore icon, um, and this was long before there was any sense that he was going to be breaking this record. Um, uh, and then when Billy no longer played for the Orioles, um, like I, I still really liked Cal Ripken. Um, but as I like got a little older and, and, you know, a little wiser in, in the ways of celebrities, um, I, I, ha- I sometimes wondered like, where is the line? Like who, who, who exactly is he? Because he can't always be this person, this persona he is. Um, even though I have a great deal of respect for him because he lives as close to that persona as I think someone can. Like there's never been any scandals. There's never been anything untoward. I mean, I actually, I looked things up, um, you know, in preparation for this podcast and it broke my heart to learn that he and Kelly divorced in 2016. Hmm. Um, But even then, like, I was just like, and that was after 30 years of marriage. So like, that's seems like an actual, like things growing apart, not any kind of, anything untoward like you know marriages don't always work out for forever yeah, yeah it's um, hard to be married to a ball player and, and a baseball legend too who is yes. still very much a public persona yes uh, yeah yeah i mean off the top of my head though the most news that cal has made since retirement and probably even since going to the hall of fame was that weird episode where his mom got kidnapped mm-hmm. i remember that you know yeah. that's nothing to do with him that's that's yeah. just a really weird, random, creepy moment that mm-hmm. uh, thankfully she she was turned out. They found her and she was safe. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not like Cal is consorting with the Dread Pirate Roberts or anything like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, and even like, um, so my husband was asking me like about where he lived and I was just like, oh, he lived just down the street from my high school boyfriend. I'm like, I drove mm-hmm. past his house all the time when I was in high school. Wow. Um, and uh, And when I say all the time, it's like, it was probably like three or four times a year. Um, cause it was not, um, it was in a, an area of the Baltimore suburbs that were like, um, uh, rural is not quite the right word, but that, you know, far apart from stuff, there's a lot of, a lot of woods, you know, his house was far back from the street and, and all mm-hmm. of that. But, you know, we knew where he lived. That, uh, that sounded creepy. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mean it like that. But... His mailbox every day to that effect. <laughs> Here, Cal, I know where you live. <laughs> um, just like, you know, he was, he was still a, you know, he was a private person, but, you know, public persona, all of that. And like um, my dealings with him, like uh, we were in like, I feel like an IHOP or something. And he is, he and his family were having breakfast one morning on a Sunday morning, like, you know, stuff like that. And that's the sort of thing like, Oh, you'd see him around town. Like you, the like people, his house was, you know, like uh, known where like, you know, it wasn't like this uh, state secret. Um, you know, you'd drive past his house on occasion and, you know, marvel at how huge it was. Of course. <laughs> um, strikes me as the kind of person who would go to IHOP and like his order would be, Milk and a cantaloupe. <laughs> I honestly couldn't tell you what he ate. Yeah. <laughs> I just remember the fact that, like, and uh, the fact that he was there, and, like, um, in person, his eyes are even bluer than they look oh, on, God, uh, yeah. on TV. <laughs> and it's just like, holy cow, like, stare through your soul, blue eyes. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that, yeah, if you look at his face, Peter Gabriel immediately starts playing in the background. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You want to hold something up over your head, you know, <laughs> like the, the, the boom box over Absolutely. your head while you're looking, staring into his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> staring into his eyes and saying, I know where you live. <laughs> All right. So now I sound like a total creeper. <laughs> That's okay. That's a good way to start. So on that note, let us open the podcast right now. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast. The Outsports Baseball Podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den. Also, let's just say comedian, asterisk, assuming comedy is ever a thing again. The <laughs> other voice you are hearing on this particular episode, this is episode number 24, the Ken Griffey Jr. episode of Three Strikes You're Out, is one of my longest-running friends uh, nearing a quarter of a century and one of the brightest writers in the financial writing and financial blogging game, money coach and Kenyan College alum, Emily Guy Birkin. Emily, thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you for having me. Yes, uh, this is the also the first uh, of the podcast that I've recorded that is all Kenyan all the time, uh, which I'm damn proud of at this point. Uh, and just to segue away from the, the main topic of what we're discussing here for just a second, that. In the four years I went to Kenyon, I not once, which I think is a pretty big upset, not once did I ever venture down to go to a Kenyon College baseball game and see the Lords in action. And I look back at that. That's one of the things that I it's not a big regret, but it's definitely like a sense of I probably should have done that at least once, <laughs> given you know how big a role the sports played in my life and mm -hmm. how much I adore the school. Mm -hmm. uh, did you ever have occasion to see the Kenyon College Lords in action? Uh no, I never did. Like I, I, uh, I made a point of going to a swim meet because Kenyon was known for swimming. And I was just like, all right, let's, you know, let's, you know, show some school pride. And I, I went there and was like, I, I'm not built for swim meets. <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was one of those, like, it's people in water with other people shouting at them and they can't possibly hear them. And that like, <laughs> didn't make any sense to me. Uh, like, it's just, this is not a spectator sport. Um, it's not, <laughs> in person like you know on tv i can get it where you've got the underwater mm -hmm. camera that's actually more exciting but um or you have the above camera where you can actually see how far apart people are but um and then other than that like i, I went to a couple of the other games i think i went to a football game and i think i went to like a lacrosse game um because you know <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Why not? You're it's a very white, white uh, uh, <laughs> game to to go to see by playing by the lords or ladies. Um, but no, I don't think I ever went to a baseball game at any. Which is also surprising now that you mentioned that that I never did. Yeah, I mean it's not like you know it was the thing to do at Kenyon, mm -hmm. but uh, but your reaction to swimming is is also like the perfect Kenyan student reaction to anything. Where even. <laughs> When you go to see sports, you're sitting there just having an existential crisis of fear. <laughs> but what's the point? Like somehow Samuel Beckett <laughs> is going to descend upon us and go, "Let's go. We can't. Why not? We're waiting for Godot." <laughs> yeah. No. I. I uh, it was definitely like I, I'm not going to call it an out of body experience, but I was just like sitting there going, "Like I, I don't know what I'm doing here, and I can't get out of it." <laughs> <laughs> and really, what is any of us doing here at this point? When it comes down to true, it? true. Yeah. Uh, which brings um, us back to today, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, so since baseball is on pause, one of the things I've been doing on the podcast is revisiting some great games of baseball past. A few weeks ago, 
a couple of friends and I talked over the Cubs winning the pennant in 2016. And I thought, you know, with one of my best friends from college being a big Baltimore Orioles fan, why not go back to September 6, 1995, the night Cal Ripken broke Lou Gehrig's consecutive games played record. And uh, yeah, that's, that's something that I remember very, very vividly, uh, which mm-hmm. from my senior year of high school, I, I remember very vividly watching that in my family room downstairs at the house I grew up in with my dad. And I remember it was one of the games, the loudest I've ever cheered for any game that didn't involve the Cubs would probably be either Mm -hmm. that or when Mark McGuire broke the Roger Maris record back when Mm -hmm. when we were more innocent about kind of things like that. (laughs) When you think about it in terms of the grand perspective, this is like the one record-breaking game that like everybody in the country witnessed that is still stood up over time that mm-hmm. hasn't had, mm-hmm. you know, any kind of seamy undercurrents ruining it a couple of years down the road when we, when we find out what really was going on, which mm-hmm. I, think, I think probably goes back to what we were talking about Cal earlier that just kind of speaks to the fact how well he's been able to maintain the image and hopefully mm-hmm. live up to that as best he can. Mm-hmm. Well, and I was thinking about that uh, in rewatching the game about um, like what's remarkable about this record that he broke is that um, it's not about a personal record. It's not about like, you know, or, or, you know, a performance record. It's um, entirely about getting, showing up and getting the job done, Um, which is not to say like, that's, there's an everyman quality to being able to, to, to hit that record. And that's not to like, um, Ripken was a phenomenal shortstop. Um, Mm -hmm. He was a, he was a great player. But like it's the stamina, which is in some ways available to everyone, um, you know, in in ways that, you know, uh, breaking the home run record is not. Um, And and that's something that I I feel like is part of the reason why, um, I mean, Baltimore, I mean, the, the whole country rallied behind him. But like Baltimore was so proud of our hometown hero. And it felt like kind of a, a, a Baltimore value that he mm-hmm. embodied. You know, it was just like hardworking, humble, shows up and does the job, you know, doesn't make a big deal of it. Um, like that was another thing that I really appreciated rewatching. And I remembered this, but the, the fact that he wanted to get back to playing. Like it was a 22-minute uh, ovation, which was amazing, yes. and um, and he clearly like felt you know it was emotional for him. But he also like he kept going back into the dugout, like let's let's get back to the game. We're playing a game here. Let's 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 play the game. And like there's there's something very um, approachable and um, just I don't know. It, it's just really uh, inspiring that that you know someone just like showing up doing his job, doing it well, not making a big fuss about it, not, not being flashy about it. There's something really incredible about it and like that deserves to be celebrated. Yeah, um, it is probably the least flashy of any like great sports record that I can think of for the reasons that you just described, that it is literally just showing up, put, seeing your name in the lineup and going out and playing every single day over and over and over and over again. And then having, you know, all the luck in the world that you somehow don't get injured playing shortstop for mm-hmm. 2,130 straight games. And uh, mentioning kind of him at the end of that 22-minute standing ovation and, and the big victory lap that he took. And one of my favorite parts about that that I didn't really notice up until this last rewatching, watching uh, is that the last time he comes up for, I think it's his eighth curtain call 
of this of the standing ovation, which anytime you get eight curtain calls, you've probably done something pretty important, I'd say. <laughs> you've kicked leave. ass. Yeah. yeah. That's fine that, that that you've done okay. But you can see mm-hmm. him kind of just looking up at the crowd and all of a sudden he he just mouths the words, no more. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just see in his eyes like I, I literally don't know what else I can give you at this point. I, I'm so mm-hmm. grateful that I don't know what to do. And mm-hmm. it, it's also in that moment is also kind of the, the purest part of this consecutive game streak because it's at that point where he's been honored for so long and he's he's had the, the stage all to himself and literally gone around the entirety of Camden Yards thanking people. But now is the part where he has to do the job that's led up to this record mm-hmm. being broken in the first place. That mm-hmm. in order to continue on with this record, I have to keep playing. And in order mm-hmm. for me to keep playing, you have to stop clapping for me and I have to get <laughs> up here and do my job some more. Yeah, and yeah. that really defined it for me in, in like maybe... Mm-hmm quick little two second glimpse uh of, of that 22 minutes and 15 seconds i think it was mm-hmm. but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah that, that that for me was was the the uh the new and best part in this rewatching mm-hmm. the game uh yeah uh, well they, they talk about him being humble and it's like that's not exactly i don't feel like that's exactly right that's exactly what it is it's not that he's humble it's that he like he serves a higher set of rules which is like this is not about me it's about the game yeah. um which and it, we were talking a little bit about like you know the, the sports cliches like and that's that's one of the <laughs> that's oh, one yeah. of the oldest ones yes. but I, like i feel like he really did believe that and that's part of what led to him breaking uh, making that that record um but also like is is um like just a, a part of his dna you know like he is he ultimately that is something that is really important to him is is the um is um meeting these requirements following these rules of baseball and and really loving the game so much and i think a big part of the reason why that kind of thing is ingrained in him and why respect for the game is is such a big part of who he is as a person is because he's part of a big baseball family that goes back multiple mm-hmm. generations. That you know, Cal Senior dominates that family in terms of mm-hmm. his position, his his job. You know, coming up through the minors with the Orioles and then being part of their coaching staff and eventually managing them briefly for for so long mm-hmm. that when you get raised by someone who is in the game his entire life and all he knows professionally is the game of baseball, those things that we think of as kind of cliches and we kind of roll mm-hmm. our eyes at as fans, that's your life. Like you are taught mm-hmm. this is the most important thing and about your approach to your job and to your life. And mm-hmm. I want to tie this in to what you mentioned a couple minutes ago about uh, kind of Cal, the, the interviews, the little, little clips they showed throughout the game. One in particular struck me about his father. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the clips he played, uh, I think, around the bottom of the fifth after the big ceremony, they did a, played a clip of an interview where Cal mentioned that baseball, when I was a child, took him, Cal Sr., took him away from me. And then when I was an adult, gave him back to me. And I thought, geez, what a beautiful, mm-hmm. what a kind of heartbreaking for a second, but also what a beautiful thing that is to, mm-hmm. to once you start mm-hmm. your professional life, realize this is also something that connects you to your father in a deeper way than you ever had a chance and gives you more time to spend with him and get to know him as a person. And that, in a mm-hmm. way, is, is one of the best things, the best, the best impacts that baseball had on his life. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that also plays into why he was so respectful of, of the tenets of the game and, and why that played into the streak in the first place. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that actually, that also kind of, 
plays into, you know, I mentioned how like, um, I was like Billy um, in part because he felt like an underdog to me um, just because Cal was always very clearly the like, like the, the superstar. Um, and um, it, you know, it felt like it was a little bittersweet's not the right word because it's so clear that Billy is so proud of his brother, you know, and, and mm -hmm. seeing a couple of times like uh, um, Cal goes to shake his hand and uh, like they, they show him several times and there's never anything other than like, that's my brother, you know, kind of <laughs> from him. Uh, and then I also like, I looked up because um, Cal's kids threw in the, the throughout the first pitch um, and his little boy, Ryan uh, was two at the time. So mm -hmm. I was like, Oh, you know, what's happened to him now? And he's a ball player now. He's 27 yeah. at this point um, or, or thereabouts. Um, and I was like, Oh my God, how do you live up to that? You know, you go into the same field as your father who is like, so huge but like again seeing that that uh, interview talking about you know baseball taking his father away and bringing him back um it, it's seems like it's um less of a competition in that family and, and more of a framework for living um which i have trouble wrapping my head around just because i don't live in a, a situation like that but i i um like that I really appreciated that and, and um, recognizing that this is, this is something that is just so meaningful to them that it doesn't necessarily matter. Like living in, in a great man's shadow is just, I mean, for one thing, that's just normal life, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also like it, it's, it's still meaningful because the, the game is meaningful. Yeah. And I would venture to guess, and I, I don't know that family dynamic, dynamic from Adam, obviously, but growing up in a baseball family and having his dad be, you know, his dad's baseball career be such a big part of his life. I would imagine that when, in terms of raising his own family, Cal probably took, you know, a number of just mental notes through the years of this is something that worked for me as the child of a ball player. So I can apply this to my own children. And then I'm sure there were a lot of things that dealing with Cal senior, where he was like, I would probably do something like that a little different. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I would hope that would teach him the pitfalls to avoid when mm -hmm. raising a kid as, as a famous baseball player. I, again, mm -hmm. don't really know for sure, but you, yeah. you haven't heard any daddy dearest stories from Ryan at this point. So you would certainly. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I, um, yeah. And it, it does, I mean, uh, it, it really does seem like uh, he's, he's the poster boy for good reason, because he really like, you know, again, like everyone's got something. But, you know, he's, it's, it's he, none of his something has made it into, into the wider world, which tells me it's nothing salacious, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you would assume they would have found something at this point. If, if exactly. There. Lord knows that anybody gets to that level of fame in any, any sport and you have people looking mm -hmm. for it. Yeah. And so uh, one of the interesting things about the streak that we were talking about earlier, kind of its status as, as a glamorous but also unglamorous record and especially as it relates to Cal that I find very interesting is that toward not, not the year that he broke the streak in 95, but as it was clear to people that he was gunning for Gehrig, he had a couple of years where he slumped offensively. Like I want to say like 1989 and 1990, he only hit in, I want to say the two fifties and only hit like 20 home runs. Whereas before people were used to him hitting around like 280, 290 with 30 homers and there was talk in baseball, and I, I remember this happening, where people would say, is the streak becoming a detriment to Cal Ripken? Is it, is it getting in the way of him being the level of player that he was? Uh, and there were people that would, you know, 
hot take artists of the late 80s, early 90s would encourage him to Cal, you know, sit, sit it out once so you don't have this pressure on you. And, and you can go back to playing the way you were in like 83 when you won the MVP or 82 when you won the Rookie of the Year. And one of the things that looking back retro, retroactively at those kind of years that were considered slumps and that were, was considered the streak was a detriment to him, with the benefit of current advanced statistics, you look back at those years and you realize, no, he actually was still great. Like uh, I went on his baseball reference page a couple days ago, looking specifically at those those slump years, and just going to throw a couple of wonky uh, wins above replacement numbers at you. In 1989, one of his big slump years was worth 6.7. 1990, again, slump year, 7.5 war. And just to give you a baseline sense of perspective, four war is an all-star. Like six mm-hmm. or seven war is like just below MVP level. So mm-hmm. I think it's a matter of power that he always had at a premium position like shortstop and the great defense he gave you every single year, regardless of what he was, what he was doing with his batting average was enough to still make him one of the most elite players in baseball, even when it wasn't apparent to everybody. And so that was the heart of him showing up every single day is because he was taking the field every single day. The Orioles had one of the greatest players in the game, even when it wasn't apparent, even to their, even to their most diehard fans. And I think that's kind of, really kind of hidden cool aspect of the streak to me mm-hmm. well and i i some of that and uh you'll have to forgive me because i do not remember the year the specifics but there was um uh there was a and i i i'm 98 percent positive it coincided with his slump whether the years where the orioles sucked mm-hmm. um yeah. and uh there was one year in particular where we had a losing streak so long there was a local um uh, DJ who said he would not shower until the Orioles won. <laughs> <laughs> and it was not a good idea. Yeah. And I, if I'd had... Does anyone like, dude, it's Baltimore. Who's going to tell? <laughs> um, and uh, I, I definitely think that some of that, that uh, slump rhetoric about um, Cal had to do with the disappointment in general with the, with the O's. And, um, it definitely affected the way that I view my hometown team. Like I've always loved the Orioles, but I feel about them that they're like kind of shit, like (laughs) (laughs) not the shit, like kind of shitty. Even though they, they aren't and weren't during my childhood when I was paying the closest attention. Um, And it was uh, like, because of that, that, uh, that really terrible year. And then um, the sense that, um, Cal had this slump and because he had this kind of um, this double-edged sword where he was good enough that any lowering was was uh, was like, oh, well, you know, he's ruined everything for the team. But even like a minor improvement was just like, yeah, well, that's what we expect of you. Um, and, and again, that kind of gets to that sense of like, I'm coming in, I'm doing the work, I'm, 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 I'm getting things done. Um, you know, like the, in the same way that you don't, really appreciate your competent coworkers, because like the ones who like who will take care mm-hmm. of things and then like when they call in sick you're like oh that asshole but then when they <laughs> take care of something you're like it's about time you got that done even though mm-hmm. like and um so not that i think that you actually treat coworkers that way but we've <laughs> all been in those situations where we've seen that happen oh, um I'm and a fan of comedy. we treat our coworkers nothing but the best here <laughs> 
<laughs> never call a coworker an asshole in stand-up no, comedy. No, That's never heard of. Yeah, you, you never call a coworker to never call a coworker an asshole when you don't have a microphone in front of you to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but yeah, so, to your point with that, uh, and I think this is that's uh, I want to say 1988 was the year where the Orioles lost like 21 right. in a row to start the year. I think that sounds right. Yeah. And yeah, the uh, the superstar of the team seems like they they always really take it hard when the team itself is that bad, even though baseball especially is a sport where your best player can only control so much. I mean, we're living in an era right now where Mike Trout is far and away, not just the greatest player in the game right now, but one of the greatest players of all time. And everybody knows this. And the Angels have made the playoffs precisely once and got swept uh, in Mm -hmm. the seven or eight years that he's been playing. So again, a player can only affect your team's record in, in so many ways. But even so, when you're when fans are going through that, I mean that that's something that they always take out on on the stars and their best. And I, I think the Orioles, especially because up until that point where they got so bad in the late '80s, they had a run from I think the mid '60s up until like the mid '80s where they were in contention at least just about every single year, and frequently were making the playoffs and won the World Series I think like three times. So this was a fan base that was just used to the fact that the Orioles are going to be great. It, it's the mm-hmm. Oriole way. It's, it's our way of life. And so not only is this a bad team, but it's a disruption to this incredible run that they're on. And who's the best player on the team when they have this, this, this disruption? Cal Ripken, Mr. Streak, Mr. Mm-hmm. Selfish, mm-hmm. Mr. Letting his mm-hmm. personal record take precedence over the needs of the team, even though the fact that he goes out there and plays every day and puts up these, these great performances is the only thing that this team has going for it. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Fans don't understand that because, you know, nuance. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of those things that's really interesting. Um, in the, uh, I am uh, I'm a, I'm a Fairweather fan, um, in, in part because I really, really enjoy the game when I see it live. Um, I have a much harder time um, focusing on it when it's when it's on TV, in part because I am not someone who like watches TV. I always have something going on all, all elsewhere. Um, elsewhere, mm-hmm. so I would always miss the the great plays. <laughs> so I'm like, oh wait, Cherry, what had happened? So um, and so even though I grew up where like if we if we couldn't get to the game, we'd watch it on TV. If we couldn't watch it on TV, we had it on the radio. Even though I grew up with that, I I did not have the same kind of like investment. Uh, in the game that the rest of my family did. Um, so like my, my grandmother had season tickets um, to, to the O's and, um, you know, just was really, really important part of her life. My mom grew up with, um, you know, loving baseball, same sort of thing. Um, and then for me, it was just, I just struggled to focus if I'm not there in person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but what's interesting is like, I wasn't, um, you know, a really invested fan um in the same way that you know some of the rabid like oh he's being selfish people might be um but i feel like that gave me a clearer eyed view of what was going on um like i did not get annoyed by the streak and that's annoyed is the wrong word but um until it was like the Earlyish mid nineties, like like ninety two, ninety three, when it started to be like talked about regularly, um, and that was when I was just like, can we just let him be a shortstop? 
you know, like just let him play. Like, let's not talk about this stuff. Like, we don't know what's gonna happen. He could he could tear a knee, he could like anything could happen. Let's just can we not let's not. And some of that is my superstition, like I don't want to jinx it. And some of it was also just annoyance that is like you know, like that's let's talk about it when we get there. You know, like let's that's not what this game is about we're here for this game we're not about like the whole so um and that that's uh i i think you know some of that was the fact that in 1988 i was nine years old so like i definitely wasn't you know right <laughs> um like super focused on all of this but it, it also just um i think because i was there to enjoy the game when i went to enjoy the game um i i had a different view of his um, his streak of his game of his play, um, you know, then I, then people who were really invested in like, the O's are always good. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because right around that time in the mid nineties is when the streak went from being something that was like well-known in Baltimore to mm -hmm. this is now a national story where everybody mm -hmm. in baseball sees it's you give it another couple of years. And this incredible record that, we never thought would be broken. And as they mentioned on the telecast several times on Lou Gehrig's goddamn Yankee stadium monument, it says a record that will stand for all time. Mm -hmm. But that's when everybody realized around 1992 or so that, yeah, give it about three years and Cal could take this thing. And that's mm -hmm. when it started becoming a national story. And people started following it, uh, not just in Baltimore, but everywhere mm -hmm. the Orioles went. And that mm -hmm. was also uh, in about a year's worth of time after that, when baseball needed the Cal Ripken story like it mm -hmm. never did before. Uh, and do you have memories of the strike in 94 at all? Um, some, some memories. Yeah. Like um, I remember being like horrified that Congress got involved because it just seemed like what, what? <laughs> um, uh, can I interrupt for a second? Bit of trivia. Sure. Uh, can you name the judge that issued an injunction against the owners and forced them back to the bargaining table when they were going to open the season with replacement players and said, told them, nope, you got to go back to the bargaining table and strike a deal with the union. Can you name the judge? I cannot. Justice Sonia Sotomayor. No kidding. How about oh. that? Oh, that's How awesome. That? Sonia Sotomayor <laughs> ended the 1994-95 strike. Oh, yeah. man. Because yeah. I, 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 I went back before. and was like, I was looking stuff up because it was, again, just kind of had to, to, you know, jog my memory. Um, and I, I apparently didn't get to get that far yeah. in my research. That is I so mean, cool. Yeah, that, that's levels of, of Ken knowledge I think you have to have mm -hmm. to, to know that. But, yeah, that is, that's, I, I don't know if when Obama nominated her to the Supreme Court, if that was, like, right off the top of my head. But mm -hmm. when I read it the first time, I was like, yep, oh, yeah, yeah, that <laughs> name absolutely is familiar. So you know, you know she's awesome, but now you know yeah. she's even more awesome. I, now you know even more. Yes, yeah. yeah, so I I um uh, I don't recall um you know a great deal about the strike um, other than it affected my social life. Because <laughs> um, um, well, just that that was something that my friends and I did. We'd go we'd go go catch a game. Um, hmm. Now let's see, I. I was 15 in 94, 16 in 95. So in 94, it was less so um, uh, because we weren't quite driving yet. But my sister was still, still at home. It was before she went to college. And so, like, um, as I said, my grandmother had season tickets. Um, we kept them um, many years through, through – uh, like, I, I don't feel like we had season tickets for um, uh, the 95 season 
and that might have been because of the strike. Um, like we, we kept tickets for years and years and years. Um, and then even after that, um, my friends and I would just like, you know, we'd go buy, buy cheap tickets and, and just go. Um, that was, um, something we'd do three, four times a year at least. Um, and, uh, so that's like, that's the biggest aspect of it is remembering like, you know, well, we can't go to the game <laughs> because there's no game. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I, I can remember my dad ranting about it a little bit, mm. <laughs> um, just about like, oh, this is ridiculous. I just need to remember. But I like, I don't remember who he was at fault, <laughs> like exactly how he was ranting or who he was, uh, um, faulting for the whole thing. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the strike was like a disruption, but it was again, not something I was paying like super close attention to. Yeah. Uh, you were better off, honestly. Uh, I remember that. I mean, I, I was a huge baseball fan then, like I am now. It's just a constant of my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I remember is that 94, the Cubs were terrible that year. Like, not 88 Orioles bad, but they were in the neighborhood a little bit. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it was kind of a reprieve where we could have six weeks where we just didn't have the 94 Cubs in our lives anymore. And that mm-hmm. was a little okay. But just overall, the baseball fan, like, I remember that September, I think, was when, do you know the Ken Burns, like, 20-hour baseball documentary? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was scheduled to air that September because it was also the game's 125th anniversary. And Mm -hmm. I remember watching it. And it's a great series. Like, I was enthralled Mm -hmm. uh, because I love baseball, love history. So, you know, it's right Mm -hmm. up my alley. But it's also a sense that shit the the only baseball i'm watching right now are games that involve ty cobb (laughs) not supposed to be how it works around playoff time and the other memory i have is the day that bud selig announced the cancellation of the world series and the cancellation of the season which was unprecedented for any sport in our lifetime yeah 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 and i remember just deciding i need something to do so i put on field of dreams that night that's that stupid saturn (laughs) Sentimental yeah, yeah. movie, and uh, when it got to "Hey Dad, want to have a catch?" just bawled my eyes. Oh out. yeah, it, yeah, so yeah. I was a hot mess, <laughs> and yeah, the strike was was just frustrating and miserable, and mm-hmm. it just felt never ending. Huh? I wonder if that has parallels in today's society in any way. <laughs> Not at all. Gee, I can't imagine. <laughs> but I think that in looking back at it from the perspective of twenty five years down the road. One of the reasons why Cal Ripken was called out for eight curtain calls and why that ovation lasted for 22 minutes and why the players eventually just had to shove him onto the field and say, look, take a victory lap, do something, mm-hmm. is because that was the first time that I could remember since the strike ended that year where it just felt unequivocally good to be a baseball fan. Mm-hmm. And I think it was kind of everybody just not wanting that moment to end because it, mm-hmm. it felt like it had just been so long since we had one of those. And mm-hmm. Calvert just kind of happened to be the inspiration for that and, mm-hmm. and the reason why we were kind of gathered together for this. So yeah. I think, you know, in a way, it was a celebration of this incredible feat and this, the person that he was. But it was also this incredible catharsis, I think, for everybody mm-hmm. that was there and everybody watching. Mm-hmm. And what struck me kind of watching the, the version we found on YouTube, it's the Orioles' hometown call. And the play-by-play announcer doesn't shut up throughout the whole No, he does not. (laughs) 
appears on camera, he has to identify like there's Rod Carew, there's Frank yeah. Robinson. And okay, mm -hmm. I, I'm a baseball fan. I know. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I watched this back uh, when it was actually happening, when I was back in high school, we watched the ESPN coverage of it. Mm -hmm. And I remember Chris Berman was the play-by-play -play guy. And Chris Berman is just a total blowhard. But mm -hmm. he knew that once this started, don't say a damn word. So it was 22 minutes of just letting the, the image and the sound of the ballpark carry the emotion of the moment. Mm -hmm. And it was just spellbinding. Like mm -hmm. you just totally got lost. And this is <laughs> to, to borrow a line from LA story. You, you just look at it and go wonderful, 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 and most wonderful. And yet again, wonderful. And as mm -hmm. I say, it had been a solid couple years since anybody who followed baseball uh, as, as a fan had that experience. And, and, I think that, that those images and that sound was like that moment coming together in mm -hmm. and, and the time when it needed it the most, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, um, as a Baltimorean, I feel like, um, you know, some of this is also 2020 me looking at it um, from, you know, this perspective, but I also definitely felt it in 1995 is like, this is something Baltimore can be proud of. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's every city I know has this feeling like, oh, yeah, we're, we suck. <laughs> but, and uh, it, it shows you how long it's been since I lived there. I now say Baltimore instead of Baltimore because I have been away too long. <laughs> I'm taking away your go. <laughs> I, I actually, I introduced myself to someone and told him, I was like, I'm from Baltimore. And he's like, no, you're not. I was like, oh. <laughs> he's like, you said it wrong. <laughs> and I was just like, I've been in the Midwest long enough. People made fun of me. I stopped saying Baltimore. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we have this sense of like, you know, like having to apologize for ourselves. And some of it is just like in the same way that people make fun of Cleveland, people make fun of Baltimore. Um, but it's uh, it's also like there there is quite a lot that is problematic about my hometown, um, and that was something that was just unequivocal. There was there the, there was no there was no bad to it. There was there was nothing but pure joy and and pride and love for this this you know hardworking man uh, who was from a, like a hometown hero from a legacy of from Baltimore who and like that there and I felt that again watching it just like you know yes we're the we're the city of Freddie Gray <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah. we are also the city of Cal Ripken um, and it's um, it may be horrifying, like some of the things that, that Baltimore is known for, but there's also something that will always be in the history books. We can always say that is who we are, too, um, and, and be proud. Yeah, that's one of the best things that sports can do for you is mm -hmm. you can have one night like that where you realize that everybody is looking at my city right now and is happy. And that's mm -hmm. you know, everybody needs that. that mm -hmm. That's a sense of it. You feel that that kind of hometown pride swelling in your chest a little bit when you talk about that, mm -hmm. and and everybody needs a little bit of hometown pride. You know, I I, I moved back to Chicago uh, for kind of not not exactly the reason you described about your losing your pronunciation of Baltimore, but <laughs> but you know that there whatever the equivalent is of uh, you know I, I was worried that that there was an essential part of me that the longer I stayed in New York, 
the more I was no longer a Chicagoan. And after a while, I, I just couldn't take that. Uh, so, so I get that. Definitely, mm -hmm. definitely get that sense of, of, of wanting to be a part of, part of that city pride a bit. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, 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 I think, a decent point of comparison that the 2016 World Series is the moment where everybody looked at the way Cub fans were celebrating uh, and the way that Chicago was just this, this massive, I want to say, orgy of joy that night. And everybody looked at it <laughs> like, I am so happy for you, except for Cleveland, which, understandable, I get it. <laughs> But, but uh, even Cleveland had to be like, it's, you know what, this is the way it should be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this may, we, we may, may have worked for it not to be this way, but this is the way it should be. Yeah. I, the and, thing yeah. that I, I recall after the Cubs win was um, Trevor Noah on The Daily Show showing footage. And he's like, I had forgotten what joy looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yes. Yes, and I have long said that it was the, the Cubs and then uh, several friends had babies. The, those were the only redeeming factors of 2016. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's so weird for me. It's 2016 was the beginning of the awfulness that we currently find ourselves in right now. But it was also the year where one of my one of the life goals was crossed off. One of my mm -hmm. absolute biggest life dreams came true. Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. yeah, when I hear the word, when I hear the year 2016, a big part of me is, is that John Oliver segment of fuck you 2016. <laughs> but, but the baseball side of me is going, fuck yeah, 2016. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I, I can remember during the World Series uh, listening to NPR and um, they, they had a, um, uh, a segment talking about people going to the cemetery to talk to their, their family who had not lived to see the Cubs, um, like make it that far. Like they hadn't even won yet. And like, I'd like, I got tears like running down my face <laughs> and like, and that was just, um, and again, like I, I have not had like a visceral connection to the O's since I lived in Baltimore, you know, which has not been since 1997. Um, and, uh, like, which in some ways makes me really sad because that is a connection to my family. Like, as I said, my, my grandmother adored the Orioles. She had like, they, you know, she led uh, uh, black and orange. Uh, one of my favorite stories about her is uh, in the year um, years before she died, she was not very steady on her feet. She was not, um, uh, she, she um, was not in great health. And there was uh, she was at a game with my mom. Like they, like she convinced my mom to take her a game. She was not doing well. And uh, there was something like a triple play. And so, like, everyone was on their feet, screaming, so excited. And um, my mom looked up. My grandmother had gotten up on the seat. Ah. And she actually, she said to my mother, she's like, Marion, I don't, I truly don't understand how I got up here. <laughs> <laughs> like, I honestly don't know how this happened. Like, oh, she was God. so excited. And, like, she was someone who could, she had needed help to get up. Uh -huh. So, wow. so that's, that's something that I, I, uh, like watching this game made me realize like how much I, I miss that. I miss that connection. Um, and, uh, the, the importance of, again, that, like that hometown pride, that, that feeling that I am a Baltimorean in part because I'm an O's fan. Um, my kids watched a little bit of the game with me. Um, they, they were asking a lot of questions. Um, and, uh, my little guy asked me like, well, are, um, I, I was saying this is the Orioles. They're from Baltimore. You know, I was, I, I remember seeing this game from, I'm, cause I'm from Baltimore and they're like, are we from Baltimore too? Oh. And, um, 
which is adorable. And I was yeah. just like, well, you were born in Indiana, which I still don't know how the hell that happened. In no universe did I expect to have children <laughs> in Indiana. Um, and now you're from Milwaukee. And then I was like having, you know, it was the, the explanation I gave them. And now I'm thinking like, no, you are from Baltimore. Like you may have never set foot there until you were, you know, a, a year old or something, but yeah, you're, you're Baltimorean just because I am, because like, that's who we are. That's our family. And it's important. Uh, and that's something like that. I was thinking like sports can do that for us, even if because of life circumstances, we, we have to live in Milwaukee and I love Milwaukee. It's a great town, <laughs> you know, but, uh, it's, it's not my hometown. Um, no matter how long I might live here. Yeah, sports are a way that your hometown etches itself on your soul a little bit. And mm -hmm. yeah, you carry that with you for the rest of your life. Even mm -hmm. if you have, you know, a long period of time where you're not closely following it, it's, it's still a part of you. And it, it's still, in a way, your kids asking if they're from Baltimore is in some way connected to your grandma standing on that seat and your memory of that. <laughs> yeah. that that's, you know, the generations of your family kind of coming together and in a way of celebrating the city through the Orioles, I think, a little mm -hmm. bit. And uh, yeah, I, that, I think that that's really cool. Um, do you remember uh, any reaction to the home run that Cal hit in that game? Uh, gosh, you know, it was um, just kind of like, hell yeah. Like yeah. it's the only thing I, I, I really kind of recall. Like it was, um, it was again, like that sense of like, it just gets the job done. You know, he's just there. He gets the job done. He does. And, and he does it well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, um, it's not flashy. Yeah. It just, it just uh, does it. So I, I honestly don't like, I remember my, my parents yelling, but like, I, I, I don't really remember like talking about it the next day or anything like that. Um, Cause we were just talking about the, um, we we're talking about the 22 minutes. We were talking about the, you know, um, like how cool various things were. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't recall us talking about his home run, which, uh, like watching it again, I was like, you get the little, yay! Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's huge. Uh, I remember watching it that night and again, watching it as a 16 year old baseball fan at the time, desperate to find anything good about the game. And I remember thinking that going into the game that, you know, it was going to be a great night, no matter what, that, that mm -hmm. there was going to be celebration, but I also wanted him to have a good game. Like I wanted there to be at least just get at least one hit just, just uh, because that will be not only was this the record breaker, but it was also you showed up and you were great. Mm -hmm. And I remember that sense watching it, it almost felt like that home run consecrated the game for me a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like not only is this a record breaker, this he has now authored a moment within this record breaking game that everybody's going to remember involving the actual playing of the game. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the loudest, as I said before, one of the loudest I've ever cheered for anything that didn't involve the Cubs. Once mm -hmm. that ball left his bat, because you knew off the bat that that was gone. And mm -hmm. I was, I was oh, yeah. off my feet and jumping in our family room, like, like yeah. as if Ryan Sandberg had hit it almost. So yeah, yeah. yeah it, it was, it was a really cool, exciting, and special moment. And looking back at it, as we rewatched it this time, the first at bat uh, where he's up at the plates, um, you could see, that he wants it to. It's that mm -hmm. uh, he works the count to three one in his first at bat, so you know he's getting fastball, and mm -hmm. he takes a giant swing, but his timing is off. He doesn't make the right kind of contact, and it pops up to high pop up to second base. 
mm-hmm. you can see in that map, oh no, he wants to send it send it out of mm-hmm. here right now. Mm-hmm. And so when it get got to uh, I think it was three oh in the second at bat, he could see that he was gonna get another fastball down the middle. And this time I'm sure he was prepared and was, and in his mind was thinking, if it's fastball, I am not missing it this this time around. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, mm-hmm. that was the one he sent out. And as I said, in, in the moment it was just it was the moment before the moment almost that mm-hmm. that you got to have an extra special moment before everybody got to celebrate for the 22 minutes. And yeah, uh, yeah. That, that the memory I have of that game is just leaving my seat and going nuts when he hit mm-hmm. the home run like that. Well, and that's a, uh, uh, um, that actually kind of speaks to like my, my, my default setting is like this is this assumption that the O's suck um, again because of because of like that 1988 season and and uh, like I, I and so going into the game I was just like just please please let them like do well enough you know like let them I, like I want them to win and they've been doing well that season I mean it was like it it's it's not like they were but it's I still have this like kind of Eeyore sense of like Ugh. so um, you know. Um, Palmero hitting that first home run was like really exciting just because like, all right, yeah, we're, we're in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, uh, Palmero was one of my favorites um, at the time. Mm-hmm. Like he, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, that was another aspect of rewatching this was reminding me how well I knew so many of these players because I had mm-hmm. forgotten that like, this was like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I remember, yeah. Yeah, I remember Messina. I remember, you know, and, uh, and Palmero at the time, I was just like, Oh yeah. Like he's a powerhouse. Um, and so um, at, that was like, uh, I was remember like, that's just like, yeah, all right, we're, we're in this game. And then for Cal to hit a home run was just like, Yes. Like, it's like when everything aligns and you're like, this is, this is how it's supposed to be. Like, this is exactly history is, is playing out the way it's supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, this was a game that had uh, great players in it. You know, uh, mm-hmm. Palmero obviously is problematic, but Bonilla was really good. It mm-hmm. also had uh, three hall of famers involved. You had mm-hmm. Cal, Mucina, mm-hmm. and Carol Baines was the mm-hmm. DH. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, and this is something that I did not know until viewing one shot this time around, but there was, after one of the angels that singled early on in the game, there was a close-up of him talking to the first base coach. And I looked and thought, that guy looks kind of familiar. Uh, he didn't have the glasses, but I kind of thought for a second, yeah, it might be. And I went up to the, uh, called up the 1995 angels coaching staff. And sure enough, their first base coach, uh, Joe Madden, who you might remember as manager of your 2016 World Series champion, Chicago Cubs. Wow. So wow. How about wow. that? How about yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I screamed in that moment. Yeah, like, yeah. That, that's the 2016 Cub effect on me is if I see something yeah. like that, I squeal like it's a 16-year-old mm-hmm. girl watching One Direction or mm-hmm. I was trying to think of the K-pop band, but it wasn't coming to mind because I'm 41 years old. <laughs> No, I, I, I get it. Yeah, it's it, whatever the kids are listening to these yeah, days. Yeah, the kids nowadays. <laughs> the kids uh, nowadays. So Cal Ripken, of course, played in eventually 2,632 consecutive games before sitting one out. And I know both you and I are working on reading 2,632 consecutive books, Emily. How about that for a segue, huh? <laughs> Perfect. That's professional. Uh, and since we are doing social distancing baseball book club here at Three Strikes You're Out podcast, uh, do you have a recommendation for any of the listeners? Okay, so this is not exactly a positive recommendation. <laughs> I mean, it <laughs> is, 
We're English um, majors. What do we do that's positive? So a prayer for Onmini. Ah. <laughs> Not exactly good baseball. There is baseball in it, though. Absolutely. But there is baseball in it. And it's because uh, I was I was thinking about it. I was like, okay, my favorite book that involves baseball. And I was just like, it's got to be Onmini. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my um, God. So yeah, the uh, um, Owen Meany is the instrument of the narrator's death uh, via fastball or a uh, foul ball, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> so um, and it's uh, I, I actually I was thinking about it about um, so I taught this book when I was a high school English teacher. I got in some serious deep shit with some very <laughs> very religious uh, parents. Mm. Um, now to be fair, I am a subversive bitch, and I sent home. <laughs> The DNA letter. Yeah, I sent home a letter saying like, hey, we're going to be reading this book. Please let me know if it's okay with you without telling them why it might not be okay with them. <laughs> um, I also, I, uh, um, one of the things that I did when I was a teacher, and these were juniors, they were uh, 17, 17 year olds. Um, so one of the things that I would do was read aloud um, uh, at various points. And I always, always, always timed it to make sure that my first read aloud coincided with the first fuck in the book. <laughs> so that they would hear, <laughs> um, because if you want to get a seventeen-year-old's attention, yeah. there's no better way. Um, into literature, absolutely. Oh yeah. So I had a couple of uh, parents. They must have been talking after church because I got uh, got an email on on a Sunday night. Um, who were really frustrated with me um, mm. and how dare I um, have sure. their children read this. Uh, I, I was teaching, it was American literature and I, I hate doing American literature uh, in chronological order because it's just boring as shit. So I was doing it um, thematically. So this was the theme for this was religion in America. Um, and so again, I'm a subversive bitch. Uh, <laughs> like the, um, um, when he was, was like, why would you assign something like this? This is just filth. Why would you sign something? Uh, and so I responded was, uh, um, well, this is a book about the importance of faith uh, during a time of personal and national crisis. <laughs> Shut him right up. Uh, and then for the, <laughs> this is one of my proudest moments, for the replacement book for the kids whose parents were like, we will not let them read this filth. Um, I chose the Poisonwood Bible. Ooh, who? Margaret Atwood. Is, yeah. Um, oh, no, uh, Barbara Kingsolver. Barbara Kingsolver, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. my bad. Um, and that book is all about how Christianity has fucked up the world. <laughs> but there's no bad words in it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, and that's where, when I told my sister who's read both of those books, when I told her, like, I was talking to her about it, what was going on, and how I'd chosen um, um, uh, Poisonwood Bible as the, as the replacement book, she was like, you subversive bitch. <laughs> anyway, long story short, the reason why I bring all that up is because um, even though that was like my way of getting the, the, uh, these parents to leave me alone, um, I do like this book is about the importance of faith in, in the face of American tragedy. Um, and uh, so the American tragedy, the, the book is about is Vietnam. Um, but baseball actually is, is this really important metaphor throughout the book um, in that it is the first tragedy that uh, Johnny Wheelwright, the narrator, um, uh, ha that happens to him is he loses his mother um, because of a, a foul ball. Um, and the, uh, there's a scene later on during her funeral, which is, you know, occurring, you know, just a few days later, 
um, while they're in the middle of the of the church, all of a sudden they can hear this little league game playing. And so like everyone in the church is covering their ears because it's so horrific. Oh. And um, I think that it's really interesting in that um, the things that are supposed to bring us comfort, um, like baseball um, at times of, of terrible tragedy, um, can also be um, really painful um, for various reasons. And so like, you know, the, the, the thing about this book is that it's so very American, you know, it's, it's about, um, it's about uh, Vietnam, it's about baseball, it's about a number of things. And so I feel like, um, and then this complicated um, relationship that we have with these very American things, which, you know, to bring it back to, Oh, Palmero, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, these, uh, um, the fact that something that is supposed to be um, just a, pure joy like that's what games are they're supposed to be pure joy that's why we watch them that's why we play them um you know yes we can get spittle flecked with uh, with rage about these games but ultimately they're supposed to be about making us feel good um and yet they're because it's a human institution there's problems there's always problems and there's always going to be abuse and um you know, people being human in ways that are really awful and things like that. So anyway, it's not exactly a happy book, although it's very, very funny. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is one of the best books I've ever read. Yes. Uh, it is the kind of, and without going into anything resembling a spoiler, it is the kind of book where I reached the last page, I put the book down, and I thought to myself, I need to walk this off. And I just went and took a walk and kept walking until, until I was done. And that, yeah, it, it had just kind of that, that effect on me. Um, and it's interesting that uh, jumping off of what, what you're saying about uh, baseball in a time of, of American tragedy and how the image of something that is, should be filled with joy can get kind of corrupted by, by, the, by a sense of tragedy and kind of have tragedy overwhelm it. That I uh, just I just wrote a piece for Baseball Prospectus last week to do a blatant plug of, of my own work. Uh, <laughs> jumping off of John Irving, speaking for? of great authors. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, total wankery, but I'm pressing forward. But the, the point of which I was trying to make was that right now I want baseball back more than anything in the world. Like it is, uh, you know, it, there is a hole. In, in, in me that, that it's, you know, mid-April and there are no games going on because we're living this horrific experience every day during the time of COVID-19. But one of the things that people are going to push and what especially people in high offices of government are pushing is the idea that baseball has to come back to get us back to a sense of normalcy. And my idea is if all we get out of the coronavirus crisis experience is returning to normalcy, we have failed as a country. And so in order to do something more than just return to normalcy and think nothing else of it, we have to start valuing the idea of other people's humanity. If we learn one thing from this, it's valuing humanity over how you fit into the gears of industry or your workplace or capitalism. And so all these ideas right now that are being thrown out, the idea that, you know, open up, you know, all the camps in Arizona and just have all the players congregate there and live in sequestered in a bubble and just play the games in front of empty stands. And somehow that will work itself out. 
every one of these to me still sounds like we're forcing people to go back to work in a time of pandemic. Mm -hmm. And until we reach a point where we can assure the players that you have safer conditions and you are not putting yourselves or the people you know or the people who work around baseball at risk, then I don't think we can, can afford to open up baseball and, and, and play it yet. And to me, that's, that's a choice we have to make in order for humanity to win out over forcing people to go back and do their jobs just because we need to restart the economy or we need to restart you know, something for our national symbolism or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's going too far of an intellectual wanker direction, but that's that's where I jumped off of your thoughts. So uh, no, no, that that makes a lot of sense because it's um, like, well, we want we have the sense we want to return to normal, and it's like normal's gone. Yeah, you yes. know, at, like we we need to accept the fact that normal is gone, and we can create a new normal. Um, but and we can create a better new normal. Um, but uh, that's also like it's the bread and circuses aspect of it too. It's like, we want to bring baseball back because that that's one of the things that we use to numb ourselves from the fact that our system is broken. Our country is broken. And um, like, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful, um, joyful aspect of our lives, but you know, bringing it back is not helpful to anyone or anything. Um, and instead, like we need to, we need to sit and think about what we've done yeah. Yeah. Know, before we bring anything back. Yeah, um, baseball coming back is is it's going to be viewed as this is a win for America, and right now America doesn't deserve a win until no. we make some changes that desperately need to be made. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's also it's um like to get again to bring it back to Cal Ripken. It's like <laughs> love it. <laughs> how's that for a segue yeah. um but I, you know i was thinking about his streak in terms of the um uh the pandemic a little bit just because one of the things that i was uh, i saw was someone um was saying like can we once this is over do away with uh, attendance awards for for school um and i connected with that because my best friend in high school had had a perfect perfect attendance from preschool all the way through um through graduation um, and that meant she came into school sick multiple times. Hmm. Um, and she, like, I know, like, the Cal Ripken was inspirational to her. Um, and hmm. wow. and so I was, like, I remember at the time thinking, like, is this, is the game worth the candle? Um, you know, this is, this, this doesn't seem, like, what, what are you getting from being here every single day? Um, and so in terms of like this streak that, uh, that, that Cal Ripken had, I feel like he did a really good job of making clear that luck was a huge factor. Um, and that's something that I feel like we need to like look at as a, as a whole, as a country is like how much of the way things have been working has just been luck. Um, you know, individual and nationwide, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> because like going back to the, like, you never take a day off, like, you know, you have to earn the right to be sick and, and all of that only worked because of luck. Um, and you know, it often didn't work, but worked on a, a national scale because of luck, um, in a lot of cases, um, and so that, that's something like I was thinking about like what, 
Cal Ripken, you know, if you were asked about about this sort of thing, what he would say. Um, and I, I, I believe, I hope that he would be like, yeah, no, like you, you, you do the work when the work is ready to be done, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I was lucky that I, that I, I never tore an ACL. I never like threw out a shoulder. I never like, I'm it's just that, that just the, the stars aligned. It worked out. Um, and I also did the work, um, but recognizing it's those two factors, not just, the one it's not just the like i'm ready to do it um well you know sometimes you can't um so these are kind of amorphous ideas but I, that was something i had been thinking about um with watching watching this game again and, and thinking about um how we talk about work um and particularly in terms of this pandemic and how hard it is for us to take a collective break mm -hmm. um uh, you know, how like people are screaming for the end of this collective break that has mm -hmm. been relatively short. I mean, yeah. yes, it's been months and, and yes, there's, there's a lot of financial fallout that is horrific to consider. Um, but ultimately like this financial fallout is something we are choosing to do. Um, we could choose not to have financial fallout if we had the <laughs> political will and non morons in charge. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, and this this collective slowing down, there's nothing like there, there, there we could make this a, a net positive in addition to saving lives. Yes, but only if we want to, as you say. Only if we choose to, yeah. yeah. And, and I don't know if we have choice. the will. Yeah, it's a big choice. And it would also mean that the people who have gotten power through the old system would have to give up yeah. some portion of that. And that seems like it would be the hardest task of all. And, uh, wow, this got deep for a second, didn't it? Man, <laughs> holy cow. I like it, though. I, uh, <laughs> and I have no idea how to segue into my book choices because uh, oh. I'm, I'm not, not going that deep. But I've, I've, <laughs> I, I've, I've got some good ones. Um, I am recommending the uh, Jane Levy Trilogy of Biographies. Uh, who is, she has become one of my very favorite baseball writers. Uh, she has written uh, Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy, and then a few years later, came out with The Last Boy, a biography of Mickey Mantle. And I'm now, right now, about 200 pages into a book of hers called The Big Fella, which is about Babe Ruth. And mm. she is someone who kind of approaches biography from an interesting standpoint, that she likes to ground it in one specific life-defining moment or incident. Mm -hmm. uh, in the case of Koufax, it was his perfect game against the Cubs in 1965. Uh, in case of Mantle, it was a golf tournament that she covered as a, as a reporter when he was, I want to say, in his 60s and made a drunken pass at her and then passed out at one point. And then in the case of Babe Ruth, it was uh, the barnstorming tour that he embarked on with Lou Gehrig immediately after hitting 60 home runs in 1927. And so she kind of uses it as a jump off point and then kind of hits all the big, important parts of their lives and kind of keeps coming back to it over and over throughout the narrative. And it makes for a compelling read every time she's mm -hmm, done it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she's also really good at kind of digging very deep into the big moments in players' careers. Mm -hmm. um, I know that, for example, in Koufax's book, I just reread the last inning that she wrote about covering his perfect game. And it's about mm -hmm. a 10-page chapter, and it felt like it did it in about a minute. Mm -hmm. And uh, she kind of mixes Vince Scully's call in between her narrative, and it's just utterly engrossing. Uh, and in terms of like her approach to each book is also approached differently too, because Koufax is uplifting. 
It's mm-hmm. the story of this great Jewish sports hero who also just really is portrayed by popular culture as this weird J.D. Salinger-esque recluse, but really it's just a regular guy who just had mm-hmm. no time for any of the trappings of celebrity. Mm-hmm. And it's a really great read to kind of get an insight into just how smart and thoughtful and just what a, a normal guy he is. Mm-hmm. Mickey Mantle's mm-hmm. story is the, one of the saddest baseball star stories I've ever read in my life. And it's grounded largely in the fact that his dad is often portrayed by popular culture as this guy who had this great vision that in order to escape the mines of Oklahoma, he turned his son into a baseball prodigy and he forced him to become a great, the greatest switch hitter of all time. And it came true. Mickey Mantle's father is one of the worst people I've ever read about in any baseball biography of all time. Just an absolute piece of shit. And she goes deep into it in that book. And I'm so grateful that that she exposes that for the lie that it is. And the Babe Ruth one, I'm only about a third of the way through it. But it's interesting to me that the thing that she keeps coming back to most, she celebrates, you know, his amazing career and talks about uh, just the way that he redefined the potential of what a baseball star could be in popular culture. But the thing that she keeps coming back to most is kind of the, this hidden sadness in his eyes from a life, a childhood really spent not abandoned by his family, but essentially the same thing where they turned him over to a school for never ne'er do well boys in Baltimore. And then essentially just let him exist there and didn't had almost no contact with him uh, up until the point where he started playing baseball. And, uh, and that that kind of underlying, she finds, Things, little little things like that. Uh, she talks about how in uh, the, the St. Mary's School for Boys, they only had meat one day a week on Sundays. They would have a hot dog. And she says, it's no wonder that Babe Ruth, when he became a, the world-famous ball player, was known for eating 15 hot dogs in a sitting. And so she finds details like that and then kind of makes makes the draws conclusions that make you go, that that's well done. And she also can write the hell out of a sentence, too. Just, mm-hmm. just an incredible writer. So all three of those books, highly, highly recommend. So, and also speaking of books, I highly recommend End Financial Stress Now. Seems like it would be something good to do, right? <laughs> Author Emily Guy Birkin. Is there anything else you'd like to plug while I got you here? <laughs> um, well, yeah, my, my most recent book is End Financial Stress Now, which um, uh, seems prescient. I, it came out in 2017, but I think it might be helpful for people now. Um, yeah. 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 Um, also, just uh, let people know um, uh, during the coronavirus, I am offering free financial coaching to anyone who is worried about money. So if you are concerned about um, about money, um, one of my favorite things to do is to help people find solutions. Um, and uh, I am not charging for it during during uh, coronavirus. Uh, you just need to find me at emilyguyberkin.com. Um, you can sign up for a um, quick, uh, quick phone call and I will do what I can to help you. It is uh, literally, I'm a weirdo. I find money problems to be like Sudoku or like Tetris. Like I just, you know, it's like, oh, okay, well, if you just slide this over here, that'll work. And like, ta-da. And it's, it actually really is something that I enjoy doing and uh, I can help you feel less stressed and I love doing it. That's awesome. And that is something we desperately need right now. And uh, <laughs> speaking as a freelance writer and stand-up comic, uh, everybody else get in line behind me, pretty much. <laughs> Emily, this has been such a joy. Thank you very much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me.